Squinting into the sun, John White spots a tree-lined stretch of land across the muddy, brackish sound water. There, he says to the men rowing, pointing to a small, sandy stretch of beach emerging from the gently swaying salt marsh. They pull the rowboat ashore and stagger out on wobbly, sea-worn legs. Cautiously, they make their way into the tree line and towards the site of the settlement White helped to build two years ago. He looks around. This island is full of enemies. He was lucky to escape it last time. He takes a deep breath and focuses on the mission. Find the settlement. Find the 15 men Grenville left behind. Up ahead, the trees thin. A clearing. The remains of the ransacked fort emerge as they near it, but White takes in little of the ruins around him. His eyes settle instead on a glint of bright white bone glowing in the sun. It's a human skull. They found the men that stayed behind. One of them, at least. In 1587, John White arrived on Roanoke Island, part of the outer banks of present-day North Carolina. He was part of an expedition sent by Queen Elizabeth I of England to establish a permanent colony in the Americas. White was to be the governor of this new colony. But this wasn't his first time on Roanoke Island. He had been part of an earlier expedition in 1585. An expedition that did not end well. And, spoiler alert, this new attempt would meet an even more disastrous end when as many as 116 men, women, and children disappeared entirely, going down in history as the mysterious lost colony of Roanoke. But did you know there's a lot more to the story than what a handful of Englishmen recorded back in the 1580s? A whole nother side to the story that's mostly left out? Let's fix that. Hello, I'm Shayla Fontaine, and you're listening to History Fix, where I discuss lesser-known true stories from history you won't be able to stop thinking about. This week, and next week, we're talking about the Roanoke Colonies, better known as the Lost Colony. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, having grown up just across the sound from where it all took place. I know a lot about the Roanoke colonies. I taught it for eight years as a fourth grade social studies teacher, researched it extensively for lessons I created for my TPT store, which is my real job, by the way, and just grew up in it, really. So cool. This should be easy to cover, right? Well, no. Honestly, despite all of that, I've been super intimidated by this episode. Well, these episodes, because this is going to be a two-parter for sure. There's just two parts to the story, so it makes sense to break it up. But yeah, I'm intimidated to dig into this because there's so much to this story, and I just really want to do it justice. So I guess I was procrastinating a little. I actually had a few listeners reach out to me on Instagram asking that I cover Roanoke after the episode about Pocahontas and Jamestown. It kept coming up in that episode and in the minifix about the Jamestown Jane, So I guess I was accidentally teasing you guys a little bit there. Sorry. But without further ado, here it is. Roanoke your hearts out, babies. You're in for quite a ride. In part one, which is this one, you're listening to part one, I'm going to talk about the 1585 colony that preceded the 1587 lost colony. And while I know the lost colony, like the back of my hand, the 1585 colony is a bit less familiar to me, if I'm being honest. That's not entirely my fault, though. The Lost Colony 
is kind of a big deal. It's been romanticized and dramatized, if that's a word, in popular culture as this intriguing real-life mystery. We've seen this most recently with the extremely popular TV series American Horror Story season six, which is very, very loosely based on, inspired by, the lost 1587 Roanoke Colony. And then, of course, there's the Lost Colony outdoor drama, which is the longest-running outdoor theater production in the United States, going strong since 1937, which once starred Roanoke Island's very own Andy Griffith. But the 1585 colony is kind of like the Lost Colony's ugly stepsister. It's the dirty little secret no one wants to talk about. But like most dirty little secrets, it is incredibly interesting and exceedingly important, pivotal in understanding what happened to the Lost Colony. So let's get into it. So 16th century England, that's 1500s, by the way, not 1600s. I know, it's confusing. Elizabeth I is Queen of England. Spain and England are mega rivals at this point in history. For much of the century so far, Spain has dominated exploration and colonization of the Americas. They have Central America, they have South America, they have the Caribbean, they even have Florida. Elizabeth wants to get in there. One of the major goals of English colonization was basically just to mess with Spain. (laughs) She wants an English presence in the Americas as like a buffer against Spanish control. She also wants a base for privateering. We've talked about privateering a bunch. It's legal piracy. The crown hires privateers to attack Spanish ships and steal any valuable cargo. It's a win-win. They weaken their Spanish enemies and England gets rich from all the treasure they steal. Enter Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh was a wealthy courtier and favorite of the queen. I think she had a little crush on him. She never married. She wasn't willing to share her throne with anyone, but she certainly fancied Sir Walter Raleigh. He wants to establish a colony in North America. And she's like, okay, cool. Me too. Let's do it. He's like, all right, sweet. When do I leave? And Elizabeth is like, oh, no, 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 no. You aren't going. You're my boo. You have to stay here. And she won't allow Raleigh to join any of the expeditions. I think a lot of people think he actually went with the colonists. No, he never set foot in North America. But he gets permission from the queen to go forward with this colony idea. The actual letters patent that was issued to him granted him permission to, quote, discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories not actually possessed of any Christian prince and inhabited by Christian people, and to hold, occupy, and enjoy forever all the soil of all such lands, countries, and territories so to be discovered or possessed. So basically, if there aren't Christians, aka white people, already living there, he can just take it just take it and enjoy it forever. The nerve of these people. Never mind that it's already fully occupied and has been for thousands of years. They're just going to take it. So that's the mentality we're working with here. That's the mindset going into this. But let's pause there to expand on that. This land is already occupied and has been for thousands of years. 
I reached out to Michael Oberg, who is a distinguished professor of history at SUNY Geneseo University in Western New York. He specializes in Native American studies and is the author of the book, The Head in Edward Nugent's Hand, which I highly, highly recommend if you're interested in the Roanoke colonies. I could not put it down. In this book, he tells the story of the Roanoke colonies, but from the perspective of the indigenous people living in the area. I'll let him set the scene for you. Well, there were lots of people in many dozens of, of, of small village communities. It, it just seems to me that, and this is one of the themes you see in the book, is that we spend too much time talking about tribes and nations for this region when what really mattered were the towns. And the towns were the center of people's lives. Sometimes these towns came together in something approximating larger movements and tribes. But really, the towns were, were quite autonomous and they did their own thing. And these towns were scattered, many on the mainland, right, but also some on the Outer Banks and, and at least one on, on Roanoke Island. These people were Algonquian-speaking people, so they shared sort of in, in broad cultural outlines a, a culture that nearly stretched all the way up the coast into New England in that they were reliant on um, it's what, what we, we in New York call three sisters, agriculture, corn, beans, and squash, sort of grown together in fields. And that supplemented with protein in, in the case of, of these towns, it's, it's primarily fishing. And there you have a perfect diet. They had a rich ritual life, rich interregional trade. You know, if you look at the John White paintings of, of Roanoke Island, which, you know, many if, if people are familiar with Roanoke at all, they're familiar with John White's painting. And you look at the, the pictures of these towns. What, what I do is I ask my students, you know, what is it that makes a, a group of people civilized? In, in big air quotes there. And they'll rattle off things like they have a religion, they have a, a, a system for gaining, gathering their subsistence, they have rules, they have order, they have clothing, they have status um, in their community, they have ranks, right? And if you look at those those John White paintings of, of the people on the Carolina Outer Banks, and, and if, you're, if your listeners haven't looked at those pictures, it's well worth Googling them and, and, and looking at them. And you'll see that even even the English who were looking at these Indians saw them as people who had they, they weren't savages, air quotes. They were people who had many of the same qualities that they did. So Algonquian speaking, I just want to clarify, Algonquian is a language. It's the same language spoken by the Powhatan, which were Pocahontas people. Within this group, Carolina Algonquian, there were many different groups. On the mainland, the Choanoic, Weepamoic, Sikatan, Makchapunga, the Roanokes on Roanoke Island, the Croatoans on the Outer Banks. But Michael is pretty adamant that the word tribe doesn't do much to explain the organization of the civilization. It's really more village-based. Stay tuned. I'll be right back after a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Some of these towns were connected to others. Some of them weren't. 
and I I find it very difficult to to sort out which towns are com- connected to other towns. And you'll notice that if you read through different historians' accounts of the Roanoke voyages, that some historians will say, well, there's a Secatan tribe and it consisted of this area and that area, and others will completely disagree with that without much sense of the, the difficulty of what they're dealing with. The indigenous people call this area Osamacomic, but I find this quite funny. Originally, the English thought it was called Wingandakan. They printed it in patents and documents referring to the area, but that's not what it was called. That was a total misunderstanding. You see, they didn't speak the same language initially. They didn't understand each other. When one of the English asked an indigenous man the name of the land, he replied, Wingandakan, which actually means you wear good clothes. <laughs> so he was just complimenting the guy's outfit, and they thought it was the name of the whole land and printed it in a bunch of official documents. But no, it was actually called Osamacomic. In 1584, a scouting expedition led by Philip Amatus and Arthur Barlow departs England. They're looking for a suitable location for the new colony. They just head west. They're like, let's just go see where we land. And they end up on the outer banks of North Carolina, which is where I live. The ocean is mega treacherous here. It's known as the graveyard of the Atlantic because of all the shifting sand and unpredictable shallow shoals that have sunk thousands of ships off the narrow strip of barrier islands known as the Outer Banks. So Amatis and Barlow sail through an inlet between the islands and into the calm, protected waters of the Pamlico Sound. This is where they find Roanoke Island, nestled between the barrier islands and the mainland. It's about 10 miles long and 2 miles wide, with tons of trees, it's teeming with game, plus the indigenous people seem friendly. Barlow described them as, quote, very handsome and goodly people and in their behavior as mannerly and civil as any of Europe. Going into this, the English wanted peace with the native people. That was hugely important to them. They saw the way the Spanish had conquered the native inhabitants of their colonies, just absolutely destroyed them. And they wanted to take the opposite approach. They wanted to make allies out of the Algonquians to use them as weapons against future Spanish colonization. If they were allies of the English, they were automatically enemies of the Spanish. Little did they know, these people already had their own enemies. At the time of their arrival in 1584, the Roanoke Werewants, or leader, Wingina, was embroiled in a violent dispute with the neighboring village of Pomiak. In fact, when English ships first appeared, Wingina was laid up in his house in the village of Dazamankapiak on the mainland, injured from battling with that group. He heard of the arrival of the English, though, of course, and sent a lower werewance named Granganameo, who was based out of a small village on the north end of Roanoke Island, to greet them. Granganameo is very friendly. He beckons them to shore. They exchange gifts. Later, his wife invites some of the Englishmen into their village, where she offers them dinner and beds for the night. The Roanokes also want to establish peaceful relations. They want to use the English, with their superior weapons, as allies against their own indigenous enemies. So both groups are playing the same game, using each other to get a leg up on their enemies. 
Barlow and Amadas reportedly had a wonderful experience and excellent, peaceful relations with the Native people. It almost seemed too good to be true. So I asked Michael about that. But do you think that that was an accurate portrayal? Do you think they they really had that great of an experience? Or did he have reason to kind of uh, twist twist that a little bit? Well, he certainly had reasons to cast things in, in the most positive light. That, that's, that's for sure. Um, there is some hinted at evidence that there was a violent encounter that, that was not included in this promotional material. That may have happened. All we have, though, is that, that um, brief elliptical reference to it. So we really don't know. But here's, here's what, I, what I try to do in the book is, is turn this story around. Because if you can read, uh, Barlow's account really is one of these perfect kind of noble savage, you know, uh, we're arriving in paradise kind of accounts. And if you take Barlow serious, a lot of the, the behaviors of the indigenous people he described don't, don't make a lot of sense, right? Why, why, would they, why would they do the things they do? And, and I think if you turn it around and say, well, okay, here's, fr- from the indigenous perspective, here's these guys who have things that either represent objects in our own culture that are of great value or that demonstrate that they might be useful to us in our, our wars against our own indigenous enemies. Then you see all this treatment in, in a different light. And so I, I believe that Barlow was treated as well by the Indians as he describes, not because they were simple-minded and in love with the English, but because they saw the English as potential allies and potential suppliers of really cool stuff that could be useful to them in, in their engagements with with the indigenous world they were a part of. Right. So it was more strategic than coming from a place of naive trust. Absolutely. There's one one account in Barlow where he talks about how they, they gave an Indian, uh, one of them, a, a, a tin dish and that he hung the, the tin dish around his, his chest. And Barlow draws this rather simple conclusion is, oh, they, they, he thought it was kind of like our armor and it would protect him. And I, I don't think the case that that's the case at all. It seems to me that this this manufactured piece of finished metal, which is was something they did not have, represented this power to do things that ordinary people couldn't do. So it seems to me that that had symbolic or mystical power and that if we try to interpret the behaviors of, of these indigenous peoples based on what we know about Algonquian culture, everything makes perfect sense. And and things that seem naive and, and you know, a little overly zealous and being friendly to the English su- suddenly seem quite, quite clear, rational and sensible. When it was time to return to England with news of their discoveries, they bring two indigenous men back to England with them. Mantio, who was part of the Croatoan group on the Barrier Islands, and Wanchis, who was part of the Roanoke group on Roanoke Island. Now, Mantio and Wanchis were not prisoners of the English. They were not forced into this trip. They were actually sent by their own people to basically gather intel on the English who are planning to return a year later to establish a colony. So they get back to England with rave reviews about the area and the people living there. Sir Walter Raleigh is stoked. He's parading Mantio and Wanchis around. The English are fascinated by them. And this helps Raleigh enlist more investors in the colony. It's the same thing King James will do later with Pocahontas. They are propaganda. See, the new world is great. The people are so exotic and cool. Don't you want to move there? About a year later, they're ready to actually establish a colony. Remember, the 1584 expedition was just to scout out a location. They were never planning to stay. Now it's 1585. 
Seven ships carrying around 600 English soldiers and sailors, plus Manteo and Wanchis, set sail from Plymouth, England, toward Roanoke Island. The 1585 colony was all men. It was a military colony. They're going to set up a fort and a settlement, a home base, so that eventually women and children could also be brought over. They would have somewhere to go. This fleet of seven ships is under the command of Sir Richard Grenville, who was Sir Walter Raleigh's cousin. So Grenville's in charge of the sea voyage, basically the crossing, but another man has been appointed governor of the colony. That man is named Ralph Lane, and he's pretty awful. He's a pretty garbage human. I don't know how these guys always get put in charge. Other notable folks include John White. He's here to record things. He paints pictures and keeps a written account of the people they encounter. Thomas Harriet was a scientist who had learned some Algonquian from Mantio and Wanchi, so he helps with communication. He also writes an in-depth account of the expedition, which is where a lot of the information we know comes from. Philip Amadas is back with this crew. Remember, he came with Barlow in 1584, so this is his second trip. And of course, Mantio and Wanchis, who have spent months in England gathering intel about these people, and they are returning with very differing views of the English. Mantio is all for it. He thinks the English are great. He thinks they will be powerful allies. Wanchis is not so sure. He's seen the brutality of these men, the filthy squalor they live in over in London, the power of their military might. He begins to fear the English will be more enemy than ally. And I imagine he can't wait to get back to Roanoke to tell Wingina all of this. Once they reach the Outer Banks, they encounter a problem pretty much immediately. Some of the ships in the fleet are too big to enter the sound around Roanoke Island. The sound is pretty shallow and the inlets are unpredictable. If your ship draws too much water, you're not getting it in there without running aground, which is exactly what happens to their flagship, Tiger. So they're forced to anchor offshore in the ocean where they're exposed to storms, strong winds and rough seas. Several ships were badly damaged pretty much immediately, and most of the food and supplies they had brought with them were destroyed by seawater. They were reportedly left with only around 20 days worth of food. So this is bad. This is real bad. They're supposed to be setting up a permanent colony. Now they have no supplies, no food, no time to prepare for winter. It's not looking good. It's a bad start. There's no way they can support 600 men with so few provisions. So eventually, Grenville takes most of the men and heads back to England to get more supplies, leaving Ralph Lane with 108 men. And this isn't just like running home to grab something you forgot real quick. This is like months, like months at sea. He's planning to come back, but it's going to be a minute. Basically, as soon as they get to shore, Wanchis takes off. He's like, see ya. He runs straight to Wingina and warns him. The English are awful. They are going to destroy us, which he's ultimately right. But Wingina isn't sure. He decides to keep exploring this English ally idea. He instructs Ralph Lane to set up a settlement on the north end of Roanoke Island, about a half mile from Granganameo's village, so he can keep an eye on them, basically. Which they do. They dig this triangular-shaped earth fortification that they top with a palisade, a fort, and then they build some houses, a blacksmith shop, that sort of thing around the outside of the fort, which seems like a weird choice, but whatever. But Lane is like, yeah, I don't know. This isn't a great spot because we can't even get a ship back here. And they have a point. I don't know why Amadis and Barlow didn't realize that. They did have smaller ships, but 
I don't know, it seems like they should have warned them about how shallow the water was around Roanoke Island. I feel like Amadis and Barlow were just being like wined and dined by the native people like, yeah, this is great. We love it. You guys should totally go to Roanoke. Just like completely overlooking major flaws in that idea. But anyway, here we are. So while Lane wants to look for a more suitable location for the colony, they're kind of forced to just set up shop here on the north end of Roanoke Island. It's an interesting dynamic we see here. When you think of English colonization, you think of men like waltzing off a ship and planting a flag, claiming the land. And that's not really what happened at Roanoke. They were very much invited in by the Roanoke people, actually told where they could set up their settlement. They were following orders, essentially. But that piece that Barlow reported back in 1584 does not last long. They are popping around to some mainland villages, introducing themselves and looking for a more suitable place to settle. They still have Mantio with them as an interpreter, and he is drinking the English Kool-Aid. It's all going well, and then there's this drama with a silver cup. Amadis accuses the people of Aquascogoc of stealing a silver cup from them during their visit. He returns to the village to get the cup, and when they fail to produce this cup, Amadis and his men burn their village to the ground. And I could not make sense of this strategically. It seems real dumb and petty, so I asked Michael about it. It seems like they picked a fight like, over something very petty, um, and, I, and I don't really understand strategically why they would choose to attack uh, and kind of ruin this, these peaceful relations that they had worked really hard to establish. So I don't know if you could share some insight on that. Well, yeah, and I, I think I have a few thoughts, right? It's, remember, they, they, the idea is they're going to return to, you know, 1584 scouts out of location. Then 1585, they, they head back for that location. And it's, it's really immediately becomes clear that it's a bad location. The, the, the flagship of the expedition runs aground on the Outer Banks. Most of their provisions are ruined. So they began exploring and visiting other towns, looking for other potential places of, of, of settlement. And they, they end up at this town, like you mentioned, this town called Aquascogoc, where, um, again, a silver cup was stolen from them. They, most of the party goes on to another location, but a, a small group of them go back to Aquascogoc and, and burn the town. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that where was the retaliation for that? No, no one, no, no one intervened on behalf of this town. And I think the thing to realize is that they were probably knocking off the English, an enemy of the people they were staying with, the, 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 the people from Dasamukpiak or on Roanoke Island. What, what that episode shows is sort of the factionalism and the rivalries between these towns and the ability to use the English as a weapon and to use rumor and, and, and scary stories to get the English to go out and attack and, and eliminate problems. Because no one, no one bothers them <laughs> after they do this. There's, if it were all one group, they, they would have done something about that, but they don't. They continue to wine and dine them. So the reaction absolutely is, is out of proportion to the offense. And the prevailing view is that the, you know, a great historian named Karin Kupperman argues that the English were very afraid of treachery. And to some extent, this is there's a lot of projection going on with this. But they, they feared that if you didn't stop a problem right away, it would grow grow larger. And the way to stop most problems for the English was 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 through violence. I mean, that, that was the measure of your strength. Okay, so that so it actually was pretty strategic then, you know, for 
they're sort of working for one group against another there that that sort of that makes more sense. So they attack and burn a few villages, but they happen to be villages that Wingina doesn't get along with. So he's like, all right, cool, let it ride. That's not what turns Wingina against them. What eventually does it is disease. Every village the English visit is suddenly stricken with deadly illness. They are dropping like flies by something they clearly have no immunity to. The English accounts don't give details about their symptoms, but it was likely some kind of influenza. The indigenous healers are not able to do anything to save the sick. Wingina goes to the English and he's like, can you stop it? Ask your god to stop it. And they're like, ah, he doesn't actually do that. Sorry. Disease kills Granganameo and another werewants named Insinor, who were both pro-English. They are two of the last allies the English had at this point. But the disease, more than anything, more than the burning of the villages, more than Wanchi's whispering warnings in his ear, this is what starts to turn Wingina against the English and away from the whole English ally idea. Here's what Michael had to say about disease. Well, it, it played a huge role, right? And, and it, it, one of the things that, you know, Thomas Harriet describes this in detail in his account. Lane, Lane doesn't say as much about it, but he described how Indigenous people saw disease as the invisible bullets. That's the phrase that Harriet used, that the English were capable of shooting at them, and that disease was something they controlled, right? It, it made the Indians to wonder whether they were, they were gods or men, the English were gods or men. And at the same time, you have Wingina approaching the English, we're, we're told, to join them in prayer and in the singing of psalms which just seems so bonkers given what's going on. And I think it's important to realize that we, we know a lot about Algonquian religion. And I think this is the important thing going on here, right? Is that Algonquian religion, you seem to have two powerful forces in the cosmos, right? You have a creator who's so benevolent and so kind that you really don't need to devote any ritualized attention to that. Your ritual was directed towards deflecting the wrath of a malevolent figure. And so in, in that logic, right, you can see why the English would say, well, they're worshiping the devil. They're not, but they are worshiping this. They are directing their ritual to deflect the wrath of this, this malevolent figure. But here's the thing. So under this kind of logic, bad things happen for a reason, right? Bad things happen because your rituals have failed to appease these this malevolent force. So indigenous people had healing rituals. We know that John White painted the the figures who did this work. And when they were confronted with this disease, whatever it is, and there's all kinds of speculation, they're, they're, no one described any symptoms, so we, we don't know what it was. They, they had their rituals for curing them, and their rituals didn't work. So what then? Well, you see these other guys, these newcomers who don't get sick, and they very obviously have their own rituals as well, connected to the, the religion of, of Elizabethan England, and they try those rituals. Clearly, some did that, and it didn't work, right? They continued to get sick. They continued to die. Harriet tells us it was one town was 20 and one 40 and one six score, which in truth was very many in respect of their numbers or something like that. I've read it. I've read this book way too many times. So I actually got memorized. So, so what then, right? If, if, if their rituals don't help you, it, it just seemed that the English themselves were a, a, a malevolent force, right? They had this technology that left Indians wondering whether they were gods or men. They had the disease that they could control. There's there's two options, and one you attack and kill them. The second one you you leave them. 
At this point, Wingina changes his name to Pemisipan. This is not uncommon in Algonquian culture. We're not totally sure why he changed his name. It may have been to signify the change in the way he viewed the English, like he's a new person who has suddenly seen the light. Around this time, he tells Lane that 6,000 native warriors are gathering west up the Choan River, preparing to attack the English. Lane heads that way. He's, he's greeted peacefully, but he storms into their village and takes their werewants, Minotonin, captive. He's like, what the heck? Why are you planning to attack us? And Minotonin is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. We aren't planning to attack you. I think Pemisipan, a.k.a. Wingina, made that up. I think he's the one planning to attack you. So this plants a seed of paranoia in Ralph Lane. He starts to believe that Pemisipan is plotting against him. Lane lets Minotonin go, but he takes his son Skyco back to Roanoke Island with him as a prisoner. When he gets back, he realizes the Roanoke village near them has been left abandoned. The people are gone. All the crops are gone. All of the fishing weirs are gone. This is a problem. The English are not self-sufficient. They rely heavily on the Roanoke people for food at this point. So Pemisipan has withdrawn that support, most likely hoping that any survivors returning from the disastrous westward mission he sent them on would just starve to death and they'd be done with the whole lot of them. You know, there were 107 English people or thereabouts of the 1585 colony. That's more people than any one town could take, right? So they, they decide to leave and distance themselves from this, this force that was causing so much destruction in their community. And that, that departure from Roanoke Island, being as they, they paddled across the, to the mainland, that awakens again this English fear of treachery and the English attack and kill people who they did not need to kill. Lane is furious. He's on to Pemisipan. He just knows he's plotting against them at this point. Plus, Skyco, his captive Choanoak, tells him Pemisipan is plotting to wipe them out in a middle-of-the-night sneak attack. Lane details all of this in his journal, and he decides to take drastic measures. Ralph Lane's account of the colony is this paranoid discussion of this conspiracy that I'm sure never, I, I can't prove it, but I, I don't think ever existed. That, that conspiracy was something Indians were telling Ralph Lane to get rid of their enemies, to go attack their enemies, get rid of them. There was no danger here. The whole, and in that sense, this is sort of a tragic story caused by English propensity to violence and the English propensity to assume the worst about indigenous people. Ralph Lane seeks counsel with Pemisipan at his village on the mainland, which today is called Man's Harbor. He meets with Pemisipan and some other important leaders, acting like he just wants to talk. And then he yells, Christ our victory, and the English open fire. Pemisipan is shot, but later gets up and runs away. They chase after him. The fastest is an Irishman named Edward Nugent. He eventually catches up to Pemisipan and cuts off his head. This is Ralph Lane's account of that moment, reenacted by my friend Bill Ray, who spent many years in character as captain of the Elizabeth II, a replica sailing ship based on those that carried the settlers to Roanoke Island. So who better to do this? I'm not sure. Here's what Lane wrote in his journal. In the end, an Irishman serving me, one Nugent, and the deputy provost undertook him and following him in the woods, overtook him. 
and I, in some doubt, lest we had lost both the king and my man by our own negligence, to have been intercepted by the savages, we met him returning out of the woods with Pimisipan's head in his hand. <laughs> yeah, so, so much for peace. Here's Michael's take. I think Ralph Lane was misled. He's told by Wingina that there's this conspiracy taking place in the West, up, up the Alamaro Sound. And he goes up there and confronts the people at, at, at this town called Choanoak. Uh, and they sort of turn the thing around. They say, well, it's not us who's conspiring against you. It's, it's Wingina who's conspiring against you. And, and, and he's, just, he's just having a fever dream about who's out to get him. And, and I, I don't think anyone was out to get him. They just wanted to get away from him. The, the Indians just wanted to get away from the English, who they saw as a, a force of destruction. Lane's account was, we have to remember, self-serving. He, he, was a, he was an army officer. He was a military man. And no matter what we say about him, he left his post. And he had to justify that desertion. And his, his justification is that there's this massive conspiracy that was going to wipe them out. And his attack was the way to preemptively you know, decapitate that, that, that conspiracy by decapitating Pemisopan. But again, the evidence, it, it just makes no sense that that conspiracy was taking place. So it seems like Lane and the rest of the colonists are completely screwed, right? There's no way they're getting away with this. But we really don't know, Shay, what what would have happened, right? Because while this just after this takes place, Francis Drake arrives and and he's his his arrival almost coincides with a hurricane which causes a lot of ships to be lost. So there's According to the account, there's not really any way for Drake to leave any ships for the English to sustain this colony, and everyone just packs up and goes away. That's right. About a week after the murder of Pemisipan, Sir Francis Drake made his way to the Outer Banks to check in on the colony. So let's rewind for a minute to have a look at what Drake has been up to all this time. Drake has been off privateering, raiding Spanish ships off the coast of Florida and the West Indies. He's taken a bunch of valuables and also captured a reported 500 enslaved Africans and indigenous South Americans. Before he heads to Roanoke, he makes a stop in St. Augustine, Florida. St. Augustine was a Spanish outpost, basically just to discourage other countries from trying to settle in that area. Drake took a bunch of valuable hardware off of the houses, locks and doorknobs and hinges and stuff, and then basically destroyed St. Augustine, set it ablaze. He's like, cool, they're going to love these doorknobs in Roanoke. This is exactly what they need over there. Because you see, he misunderstood the situation completely. He thought the Roanoke colony was surely well-established and thriving at this point. He rolls up with a bunch of fancy hinges and finds them basically starving and at war with the neighboring indigenous groups after murdering their leader. He's like, okay, never mind the doorknobs then. Ralph Lane is like, get us out of here. He wants to head up towards the Chesapeake Bay to scout out a better spot for the colony, but a terrible storm, probably a hurricane, scatters the fleet and basically forces them to return to England. What I find very interesting is that when Sir Francis Drake returns to England, he only has 100 enslaved people with him. What happened to the other 400 enslaved Africans and South Americans he stole from the Spanish? Some historians theorize that he left them behind on Roanoke Island. This would change everything. 
When the 1587 group arrives the next year, they find no sign of any enslaved people, just that one English skeleton. So if this is true, there's a whole nother lost colony of Roanoke that no one even cared to look for. Others think maybe they were lost at sea during the storm, maybe Drake sold them off on the way back to England, but I can't stop coming back to the possibility that they were left behind. The impact that would have culturally, linguistically, genetically is profound. I really want to dig into this more, but I'm going to have to save it. Might have to revisit this in a minifix. So Lane and Mantio and all but three of his men escape back to England with Sir Francis Drake. Those three were off on some adventure, like scouting out new spots or whatever, and they got left. Not long after this, Sir Richard Grenville actually returns. Yeah, remember him? He had gone back to England for more supplies, which he now has. But upon finding the settlement abandoned and everything basically in shambles, he's like, darn, I guess that's that. He leaves 15 men behind to hold the fort and heads back to England. Soon enough, John White, returning with the next group of colonists, would find one of those men very much dead, and the rest of them nowhere to be found. And we're back to where we started from. Just a year later, despite the absolutely disastrous outcome of the 1585 colony, Queen Elizabeth I gives Sir Walter Raleigh the go-ahead to send another group over, this time with women and children. Tune in next week to hear about the 1587 Roanoke colony, why it was doomed from the start, and how it went down in history as the lost colony of Roanoke. How do you think the choices that were made in, I guess, really 1586 affected the outcome of 1587? Oh, I think it doomed the 1587 colony on Roanoke Island. There, there was no question. That's next week. Thank you all so very much for listening to History Fix. I hope you found this story interesting and maybe you even learned something new. Be sure to follow my Instagram at History Fix Podcast to see some images that go along with this episode and to stay on top of new episodes as they drop. I'd also really appreciate it if you'd rate and follow this podcast on whatever app you're using to listen. That'll make it much easier to get your next fix. Information used in this episode was sourced from The Head in Edward Nugent's Hand, and a huge thank you to author Michael Oberg for being willing to share his knowledge with us, Fort Raleigh National Historic Site, Coastal Review, Smithsonian Magazine, Washington Daily News, the First Colony Foundation, and the Journal of Ralph Lane from Documenting the American South. Links to all of these sources can be found in the show notes. Also, huge thank you to Bill Ray for helping to bring Ralph Lane's words to life. <laughs>